Let's jump into things this morning. Um, uh, just a quickie announcement here to extend what Alex said. Uh, we sent a COVID update in Vision Clips. And again, moving past today, we'll, next week we'll be outside. Current plan is for nine weeks. I think it'll be a helpful transition for us. Uh, then as of June 2nd, uh, particularly with relevance inside the church for class and for life group, life group all mask restrictions and all social distancing will be lifted. And uh, we're beginning to work now for our transition back inside. So, and of course, outside, uh, those things won't be required as well. So, yeah, we're moving towards more of a normalization. And uh, being outside will be a little bit of a transition for us. And so, again, we're, we're uh, continuing to grow here and change quickly. And we thank you for, we thank you for your patience with us as the, uh, the, the pastor group. Uh, we're having to make very many decisions in a rapidly changing environment and uh, all of the rest of the church life you know keeping our mission alive teaching um, prayer managing conflicts caring for the hurting you know none of that's been put on hold and um, we're managing multiple fronts with complex questions that require a great deal of thought and decisions being made in a short window of time so we just want to thank you in advance for your grace and patience with us. When we go outside next week, we're going to begin a new series of messages through the book of Philippians. And um, uh, before that series begins, I'll write up a, a little write-up. Um, why now? And uh, why now this book? Again, we'll be starting it actually, uh, it'll be two weeks from today. We'll have our celebration service first. Then that first Sunday of June, we'll start our series in Philippians. And before that, I'll write up a little piece on why Philippians and why now. We, um, we have hit on a lot of topics through Proverbs. This is our last Sunday in Proverbs. And we have tried to draw from this book a picture of the grounded life. Because wisdom from God makes us wise and attractive and useful. And in all of this turmoil, we have needed grounding in something solid, something that has stood the test of time. We have hit on lots of topics through Proverbs, the topics that make up the second half of the book, friendships, emotions, family, speech, money, pride, and humility and caring for the poor. And this morning, there is one more topic we cannot ignore and we are tempted to do so given how controversial it is. As a matter of fact, it may not be a stretch to say that this topic is the most controversial subject today in the culture and in the church. And it is the topic of justice. You know, in the very introduction in the book of Proverbs, we discover that understanding and practicing justice is a core part of this book. Justice puts into concrete action, justice put into concrete action is part of the grounded life. Our view of justice spills into our personal relationships and the kind of societies that we envision. Our view of justice is a prism through which we interpret the events unfolding around us. That is why what one believes about justice is so relevant. And it is why grounding our beliefs in Scripture is so vitally important. So here's an outline to help us this morning. Number one, why is this topic so important now? Number two, justice and the Proverbs. And finally, three, justice and the kingdom of God. Let's pray and ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. Will you join me in prayer? Father, in Christ Jesus this morning, we want to experience your presence with us this morning. We want to learn from you, Father. We want to understand more of how the world is unfolding around us and how you think, Father, and how you feel about it. So we ask you this morning that this would be more than an exchange of information, 
but it would be a way, Father, that we, through learning the scriptures, can connect more deeply with you, with one another, and with the world around us. May we have your same heartbeat for our community, for our neighborhoods. And we may, may we have understanding and wisdom through the help, through the illumination, through the revelation of the Holy Spirit today. Speak, Holy Spirit, speak to us and capture our hearts and capture our attention with your heart. In Jesus' name, we pray to God be the glory. Amen. Amen. Okay, you ready, my friends? Why is this topic so important now? First point. Well, let me give you three reasons why I believe it's, it's pressing that we talk about this issue. Number one, it is vital that we see justice is a very important topic throughout the entire Bible. It is in the Mosaic Law, justice. It is in the wisdom literature, the Job and Psalms and the Prophets. All throughout the Psalms, God is described over and over again as just and as loving justice. It is the foundation of his throne. Justice is a very significant part of the prophets, particularly Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos. Injustice is called out repeatedly. As to Jesus, the prophet Isaiah predicted the coming Messiah would come with justice and bring justice, that he would proclaim justice, that he would not falter or be discouraged until he established justice on the earth. Jesus describes himself as just in John chapter 5, thus qualified to judge fairly. In his inaugural speech in Luke 4, he states that one of his purposes is to set the captives free. Justice is a powerful concept in the Bible. And we cannot read the Bible and conclude that justice is not an essential characteristic to God, that he causes people to live justly, and that he condemns injustice. So that's the first reason. Second reason is the relevance of it all. The, the, cry for, the cry regarding injustice is everywhere. Regardless of how you evaluate it, the reality is that 18 to 24 million people were involved in protests last summer. Now, indeed, some exploited that protest, but for many, their signs, their appeals, their speeches obviously reflected a sense that they were crying out for justice. Justice is on NBA basketball jerseys. It's painted across our city streets. It is the pressing question every day in the news. Income equality, race relations, what to do at the border, gun rights, freedom of speech, and cancel culture. These are all justice issues. Critical race theory, which was up until about 12 months ago, was a very dusty academic issue, only talked about amidst academics, has now exploded into the popular world and consciousness. Do a Google church on CRT, as it's referred to today, and you will get 264 million results. So its relevance is why we need to talk about justice. Thirdly, we need to talk about justice now because the church, and I mean not just this church, but the church in America, has not talked about justice. Another term we might use, a friend of mine uses this term, another way to think about it, another phrase is civic, civic righteousness. Now, particularly the evangelical church has not talked about justice. It has been easy to ignore because it is so controversial. The term justice carries a lot of baggage with it. It is attached to socialism, Marxism, and churches that abandon orthodoxy. So to talk about it in the church, we often react very reflexively. And really, honestly, this is all very understandable. 
But what we sometimes fail to see is that in our world and in our culture, there are two competing, at least two, two competing visions of justice. There's a secular vision, the kingdom of the world, and there is a Christian vision of justice, the kingdom of God. You know, from early on, any of you who've been parents, you know, right, that justice is woven deeply into the DNA of who we are. You know, many of the beginning of a child appeal, a child's appeal to you is that this is not fair. As if they're responding to something, to some sort of code that's already inside of them that understands equality from the very start. Again, there is justice according to the kingdom of the world, and there is justice according to the kingdom of God. Thaddeus Williams asked this question. He wrote a book called Confronting Injustice Without Compromising the Truth. He asked the question, why does half of America see itself as pro-justice and the other half as pro-injustice? I mean, both the Proud Boys and Antifa shroud their behaviors in the high ground of justice. Why does half of America see itself as pro-justice and the other half as pro-injustice? This is really insightful. It's what Thaddeus Williams wrote. It all comes down to the issues behind the issues. The transgender debate isn't about pronouns. The same-sex debate isn't about cakes. The abortion debate isn't about clumps of cells and coat hangers. The poverty debate isn't about the greedy communists or capitalists versus the commies. People on both sides of these controversies believe they are fighting for justice. Peel away the layers of each controversy, and at the onion's core, you'll find ans different answers to some of life's deepest questions. You see, it really does come down to when we try to discern the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the world in its pursuit of justice. It really comes down to these worldview questions. Who is God? Who are we? What is the nature of sin and why human beings sin? What is individual sin? What is corporate sin? What does salvation mean? You see, answer these questions in alignment with the Christian worldview. This is how a Christian can discern if they are doing kingdom justice. This is how they can discern if they are seeking to alleviate suffering in the name of Jesus or under a secular banner. Now, you see, just because there are competing visions doesn't mean we should not talk about justice. We don't, we don't, this is a double negative, so forgive me, English teachers. We don't not <laughs> preach on love because love is misconstrued by the culture. We don't not preach on sex because sex is misconstrued by the culture. We don't not preach on money because money is misconstrued by the culture. I, I believe, friends, that if you and me, particularly those of us who have grown up in the culture of American evangelical Christianity, if we were able to approach the Bible with virgin eyes, without that baggage, we could come to no other conclusion that justice is a very important biblical concept that needs defined and explained. So, to wrap up this first point, three reasons we should talk about justice now. One, it's all over the Bible and is a defining characteristic of God. Two, in this rebirth of activism, much like the 60s that we are witnessing, justice is the primary question. It's so relevant. And three, it's been a neglected topic. And the result of not talking about this hurts the church. Listen to what Tim Keller wrote recently. Keller wrote this. In the Bible, 
Christians have an ancient, rich, strong and comprehensive, complex and attractive understanding of justice. Biblical justice differs in significant ways from all the secular alternatives without ignoring the concerns of any of them. Yet Christians know little of biblical justice, despite its prominence in the scriptures. The ignorance is having two effects. First, large swaths of the church do not see doing justice as part of the calling of individual believers. And second, many younger Christians recognizing the failure of the church and wanting to rectify things are taking up one or another of the secular approaches to justice, which introduces distortions, which in introduces distortions into their practices and their lives. Friends, these are two things that we want to avoid. These are, these are two things, by the way, I think, which happened to the church in the 60s when, when, again, the church was unable in that historical moment to delineate the kingdom of God justice versus the kingdom of the world justice. And I think in some ways we're still paying a price for the inability to make that delineation. All right, so enough of that first point. Let's go to our second point now, justice and the Proverbs. How does Proverbs contribute to this topic? Let's look at a few verses and roll through them fairly quickly with some illustration. First, Proverbs 1.3. In the prologue to the book, where Solomon gives the reason for the book being written, verse 3 says, For receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair. Pastor Nick pointed out to me earlier this week on how I, I just never thought about this. Remember, this was a father king writing to his son and other princes. They were going to have power. They were going to have authority. How would they use it? Sadly, ironically, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who became king after Solomon, did not follow this wisdom. As a young ruler with power, he refused the advice of older, more mature leaders and went with the advice of his drinking buddies, his peers. They advised more taxation, more oppression, showing again that when you mix sin and power, that is always the result. You get oppression. Let's look at the next verse, Proverbs 2, 7 through 9. Here, the writer of Proverbs is appealing to his, his son and the royal princes to seek God, to cry aloud, to have this relationship with God where they're crying for wisdom. They are dependent on him. And then this would be the result of those who cry for wisdom. It says that God holds success in store, the, the good life. God holds the beautiful life, the grounded life, in store for the upright. He's a shield to those whose walk is blameless, for he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair and every good path. Proverbs 12, 5. The thoughts or the plans of the righteous are just. The counsels of the wicked are deceitful. I love this verse. Over the last few years, I've thought about this verse almost more than any other verse. Justice begins in the heart. Justice begins in our thought world. When facing a tough decision, when evaluating a conflict, when dealing with internal anger towards someone, I have tried to think about this verse and ask these questions. Is what I am thinking just? Is what I am feeling just? Is the way I am seeing this situation just? Have I thought about things from the other person's point of view? Now, I, I've not gotten it always right, obviously. But many, many times, 
These questions have revealed prejudices on my part are shallow thinking. The thoughts of the righteous are just. Let's look at another one. Actually, three verses together here. Tammy, I'm going to roll through these quickly. Proverbs 17, 23. These all revolve around the legal system. Proverbs 17, 23. The wicked accept bribes in secret to pervert the course of justice. Proverbs 18, 5. It is not good to be partial to the wicked and so deprive the innocent of justice. And Proverbs 29, 7, which Nick mentioned earlier in our series, the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. It is clear from these verses and so many others that God is concerned for justice in our courts and our legal system. And he is particularly concerned for the poor who often find they do not have the same access to legal help or resources. You know, when people read verses like this, and there's so many of them, both in the Old Testament as well as in the Gospels, people ask the question, does God favor the poor? It seems like he favors the poor. Well, I think the answer is yes and no to that question. Does God favor the poor? It is no in that God is not partial in his judgment. The poor will stand before God as much as the rich do. The poor will pay for his sins as much as the rich man pays for his if they are not in Jesus. But the answer, I think, on does God favor the poor is yes, in that God knows the inclination of the human heart, and history bears it out quite clearly, that those in power can tilt the laws or tilt the legal system in order to protect themselves or the wealthy or the influential. Therefore, God aligns with the poor in the sense of defending them and holding accountable those in power to protect their rights. Injustice in our courts, when it does happen, is a terribly sad reality. Last year, I read a book about such injustices. I had not read a book like that before. A book entitled Just Mercy. The movie, by the way, uh, also came out in 2019, and I wept through most of it. Its main story, it's the story, is about Walter McMillan, who in the 1990s was wrongly sentenced for murder in Alabama. His case revealed how on one level, this is scary, how easily evidence can be manipulated. And secondly, it revealed deep racial prejudice in the local prosecutor and in other parts of the legal system of that county and state. McMillan was a black man who spent six years on death row before his release was won. Yet his life was never the same. There were scars that never healed. And his case would not have been won. He would have died on death row had it not been for the tireless efforts of a young Harvard-trained lawyer named Brian Stevenson, the author of Just Mercy. Stevenson was motivated by his Christian faith that was instilled in him by his parents. Stevenson gave up. He was a Harvard-trained lawyer, and he gave up the expected pathway of becoming a high-powered East Coast lawyer to assist those who had been wrongly or unjustly sentenced. Before reading this book, if I could just be so honest, very honest with you. Before reading this book, honestly to me, and I say this to my shame, that those wrongly sentenced on death row were to me just regrettable but necessary cast-offs on a system that was overloaded and a system that could not be held to a standard of perfection. Rather than seeing the pain of individual human life that is bearing the weight of injustice, not to mention the unimaginable heartache of communities and families surrounding those individuals. I think scripture informs us of which, of which attitude is the just attitude. God deeply cares about justice 
and he is pained by injustice. One more proverb, moving on from that aspect of justice. Proverbs 21.3, Solomon wrote, To do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Friends, God is more concerned for your righteousness and justice than he is you're just showing up at church or doing Christian activities or tithing or whatever. He looks at the heart to see what is there. Is justice growing in your heart? Is righteousness growing in your heart? Now, before going on to the third point, let me return to Tim Keller for a moment. For I think this quote from Generous Justice ties together many of the points that we've made so far. Keller wrote this. As we continue our study, we will see there are valid reasons why many become concerned when they hear about Christians talking about doing justice. Often that term is just a slogan to recruit listeners to jump on some political bandwagon. Nevertheless, if you are trying to live in accordance with the Bible, the concept and the call to justice are inescapable. We do justice when we give all human beings their due as creations of God. Doing justice includes not only the righting of wrongs, but generosity and social concern, especially towards the poor and vulnerable. This kind of life reflects the character of God. It consists of a broad range of activities from simple, fair, and honest dealings with people in daily life to regularly, radically, generously giving of your time and money to activism that seeks to end particular forms of injustice, violence, and oppression. You see here that Keller has given us a working definition of justice rooted in the scripture. What is justice? Well, I think here is a great working definition. We do justice when we give all human beings their due as creations of God. When we give all human beings their due as creations, as creations of God. So therefore, justice is not just reactive, but it is proactive as it seeks to treat all people as image bearers of God. Let's go to our third point now. The kingdom of God and justice. We want to, right, we've been trying to discern the kingdom of God, justice in the kingdom of God versus justice in the kingdom of the world. And one thing that helps us is to realize is that we want to extend the kingdom of God as it is in heaven here on earth, right? In the kingdom of heaven, the justice of God is brought to bear in every inhabitant, creating right relationships and beauty, right? That's what's going on in heaven right now. In heaven, the justice of God is brought to bear on every inhabitant, creating right relationships and beauty. And it is more than diversity in heaven. It is more than equality in heaven. It is oneness. <laughs> it is oneness that does not swallow up our unique individuality. That's what's going on today in the kingdom of heaven. And what is the foremost prayer that Jesus taught us? What is the foremost petition that Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer? May thy kingdom come. May thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the foremost prayer petition in the Lord's Prayer. Thus, part of our calling is bringing God's justice to every human relationship in our own sphere. Certainly, justice begins in our own homes. Let's look at a few more important verses to see how justice is part of the kingdom of God. Micah 6.8. Many of you know this. Micah wrote towards the conclusion of his book, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to act 
justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. To love mercy reveals the attitude of the heart. And it is the same loving kindness that God shows us. When we act with mercy, friends, we show that we grasp the gospel. When we don't act with mercy, we show a darkness or a cloudness or a thickness in our grasp of the gospel. To act justly is the, so to love mercy is the attitude, to act justly is the action, and this shows in God's economy, the attitude is just as important as the action. If you seek justice, if you're seeking justice, but you assume the worst of others, are you stereotype, are you generalize, and I see this on both sides, if you assume the worst, if you stereotype, if you generalize about your political or cultural opponent, it is not of God. It is not of God. For God calls us to love mercy and to act justly. Another, back to Proverbs in this area of justice. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. And finally, a lengthy passage, which we'll just put the reference up here because it's long. But if you want to follow in your Bible or your device, a powerful passage from the book of Job. As Job was reviewing his own life uh, after being interrogated by his friends. Here's what Job says about his life. I want you to highlight the role of justice in Job's life. He writes this. If I have denied justice to any of my servants, whether male or female, when they have had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to account? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? If I have denied the desires of the poor, or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but from my youth I reared them as a father would, and from my birth I guided the widow, if I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing, or the needy without garments, and their hearts did not bless me for warming them with the fleece from my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court, then let my arm fall from the shoulder and let it be broken off at the joint. For I dreaded destruction from God. And for the fear of his splendor, I could not do such things. Job is describing the life of a godly person and their attitudes towards the poor and the vulnerable. Of course, we see Jesus pick up the same theme in Matthew 25 in the parable of the sheep and the goats. You can see from Job's attitude that giving to the poor, protecting the weak, is more than charity. It's justice. And there is a justice that all of us can do. There's a justice that all of us can do in the sphere where we live and the people that we work with, the people in our community. Justice begins at home and then justice moves to the church. My goodness, if we cry out against injustice out there and there's not justice reigning in our relationships, obviously our message will, will fall on deaf ears. But as God calls together the church and as people are moved by the Holy Spirit, then some team together within the church or they may partner with those from other churches and they begin to address issues of injustice within their community. Now here's what I believe about the local church and this work. I believe the primary work of elders and deacons to be the teaching, the discipleship, the evangelism, uh, the physical care of the members of the church. 
It is their main role to build a healthy, growing, caring congregation. And friends, believe me, that takes an incredible amount of energy and focus. Now, within the greenhouse, that if a church is functioning healthy, if pastors and leaders and elders and deacons are in healthy relationships and are building a healthy church, it's as if they're building a greenhouse. And in greenhouses, things grow and the spirit moves. And some members will take on ministries. Some members will take on ministries that reflect the same priorities as the pastor's evangelizing, teaching, shepherding. Yet others will be pulled, they'll be called to primarily work outside the four walls of the church. Some sent out will be motivated by spiritual lostness. And their heart is to seek those spiritual strays who are lost before God. And they give their time and energy to evangelism. Others will be motivated by the physical suffering that they see or by injustice, and they will give energy there. Friends, it is so critical that we affirm all these gifts and callings. Thaddeus Williams, again, he describes what some of this can look like today. Some of this when we're moved by the suffering outside of our four walls or sometimes inside, but people that are moved by injustice. For example, Williams says that this could describe Christian efforts to abolish human trafficking, to work with the inner city poor, to invest in microloans to help the destitute in the developing part of the world, to build hospitals and orphanages, to upend racism, and to protect the unborn. You know, it is so critical as the Holy Spirit moves us according to our passions and callings, it's so critical that you not think everyone has to come to your, alongside your particular cause and feel strongly about it as you do. This is one of, the, one, of the, one of the potential conflicts when you let the Spirit move and recognize there are many gifts and callings. Some Christians think their cause is the cause for the entire church and expect others to have the same passion and energy as they do. But this is misguided. This mentality has divided so many good Christians from good churches that actually love them and support their cause. But they fail to recognize that God is doing much more outside of their particular gift and calling. You know, I talked about Brian Stevenson, and Brian Stevenson is the founder of Equal Justice Initiative. He saved Warren McMillan's life, and he saved many other lives, and, and speaks out against when there is injustice in our legal or court system. But I'd like this morning, as I'm going to close up here on this final point, I'd like to talk about another hero to me this morning, another uh, social warrior, so to speak, cultural warrior, who was moved by injustice. He's passed away now, but his writings cast a very long shadow over my life. I've read most of what he's written, sometimes returned to it. His name was Francis Schaeffer. Um, interesting man. He, 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 he spent most of his work in Central Europe and Switzerland. He wore knickers. He had funny kind of hair. And, uh, but he was a profound individual whose impact is still being felt today. Schaefer's impact on America, as a matter of fact, Schaefer's impact on the church in America is still being felt deeply in the existence of the pro-life movement. That is, that, and that pro-life movement to this day expresses the beliefs of tens of millions of people in this country and expresses the beliefs and the convictions and the understanding of this particular church. Schaefer was one who applied Proverbs 31, who will speak for those who can't speak for themselves. And certainly the unborn are the most vulnerable, the most weak, the most voiceless in our culture. Schaefer in the early 80s, along with C. Everett Koop, 
who actually became the Surgeon General under President Reagan, they educated, and I participated in this, I was able to, this is where I, I learned, they educated hundreds and hundreds of churches across America on the realities of abortion. And this was long before, long before uh, technology and the imaging that we had today, long before that, Schaefer was arguing that that's life in there. That's a real human life that's not fetal material. It's a life. You know, whether it is with African Americans or whether it is with immigrants or whether it is with the unborn, what people do when they want to marginalize a certain class or certain sect of, of people, they call them by a different name. We call them three-fifths of a human being or we call them fetal tissue. Or things that the Nazis called the Jews, half-human, subhumans. When people want to persecute, when people want to terrorize a certain class, they always will classify them as something less than human in order to justify their behavior. The same has happened in the area of life inside the womb. Now, again, keep in mind that we've, when we've talked about this passage, we've often talked about, well, let me actually, let me say, share this first, and then I'll, I'll, I'll say this. Another fact I want to say is that I know, I know a man in a different country where abortion is rampant, it's, it's regularly practiced, it's encouraged. This man in this different country travels to churches with the same passion as Francis Schaeffer and Everett Koop did to educate Christians on the truth of abortion. And when he speaks, there are always tears to his audience. Congregations are typically smaller than this. But there's always tears, there's many tears. Tears from men and tears from women. And that's because his research has shown that nearly 80% of them have participated in an abortion. Many not realizing what they were doing. That brings up the point again that maybe you're in that same camp today. You're a man or you're a woman who's had an abortion or participated in an abortion. And again, we want to extend you even as we talk about this evil, and it is an evil. We want to extend to you that talk to one of us if you're suffering if you're suffering alone or in shame or in silence talk to someone there is forgiveness through Christ it is not the unpardonable or unforgivable sin Schaefer was a true advocate for the unborn and unlike the what the critics try to say he was an advocate for the elderly he was an advocate for the mentally and physically handicapped. He was an advocate for the poor. He fought injustice in the name of Jesus. But he was more. And this is the challenge I want to leave with us today. He was more than that. You know, Schaefer lived during the titanic shifts of the 60s and 70s. Titanic shifts. Friends, if you think what we're living in is bad now. I encourage you to go back and rewatch some of the reels from the 60s. You thought civil war might break out? The same was thought in the 60s that we're on the verge, the brink of civil war. Some of you who are old enough remember that. He saw the Christian church reeling over the cultural upheaval of that era. He witnessed the hippie movement the sexual revolution, the drug culture, and the turning over of so many things that the Christian church valued. Schaefer did something else beyond advocating for cultural change. Schaefer did something else beyond warning Christians to stay alert. He wept. He wept. He wept for the young people of his day who were turning everything upside down, who were creating fear and uncertainty about the future. Schaefer was willing to listen to their questions and to the critiques of the church, their critiques of the church. And in their rage and rebellion and rampant finger pointing, he realized they were pointing out some cracks and some fissures in the church. Because he wept, Schaefer became an amazing evangelist. 
starting a movement called Libri that sprung up all over Europe and the United States, where young people could come together, could come and see and witness and live inside of Christian community and process and work through their questions and have them answered in a loving and just and truthful way. Schaefer was concerned. He was gravely concerned about the social, secular movement of his day. He actually saw into the future and predicted correctly what we're experiencing today, 50 years ago. But he did not let that prevent him from seeing, first, human beings lost before God. He looked on the crowds that were changing the world, creating uncertainty about the future, and he had compassion on them. He saw it as a spiritual moment. What was God up to? Of course, we know today that the social titanic shifts in the 60s and 70s did lead to church renewal and authentic revival. This church is here today because of that revival. And so the question is, what will we do in our own day? How will you see the events that unfold as our world is erupting with change? I understand your fears. They're mine, too. I understand your worries. They're mine about your children and about your grandchildren. But what's happening to us today is also a reminder that we are strangers and aliens in this world. This is not our home. And it was never meant to feel that way. God may be trying to get our attention and remind us of that truth. And I pray that God would raise up new Francis Schaeffers, whose concern for the direction of our culture does not swallow up their tears for the great spiritual hunger that is revealed in all of this change and turmoil. May we see the moment that we're in. And according to the vision that we're in right now, the vision as a church of being ready, of being prepared, may we be ready for the moment that we are in. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need you to understand the moments that we're living in. We know that you understand and empathize with our fears. We know that you empathize with our concerns. We know that you empathize with the things that make us angry, with the things that upset us. Father, thank you that you understand and you empathize. And you're willing to meet us and encounter us right there. In the power or maybe even in the ugliness of our emotions. You're willing to meet us. You're willing to encounter us. Father, we pray that we, pray that we might not pendulum swing. As has so often been the case, Lord. May we hold these things in tension. Father, may we live to proclaim the gospel and may we love mercy and do justice. Lord, let us hold this calling together in attention that pleases you, in attention that helps your Holy Spirit to fulfill your role and your will through this church. Father, to your glory we pray. We need you in this. We love you, Father, and we worship you today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 I look on today as a beginning of a conversation in this church, a topic that we've not addressed very often, a topic that we're still learning and growing in. 
Let today be the beginning of that conversation as we learn and grow together as a community in understanding God's calling, God's will for our lives. After the service, I'll be here. Uh, other pastors will be here. If, if there's anything today that you need prayer for, you maybe came in this morning and thinking about justice was the last thing on your mind. You're experiencing trouble at home. You're experiencing conflicts. You're experiencing relational issues with the people that you love the most. You may have had bad news this week about a loved one. You may have had bad news this week about a physical ailment. You may have been tempted this week to feel despair or loss or an uncontrolled envy. You may this week have battled a rage inside of you. Come forward. Let us pray for you. Let us lay hands on you. Let us bring the presence of Jesus to you through the power of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and prayer. So work your way down here, if you would, please. And again, don't forget, next week, 10 o'clock, we'll be outside. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, I'd like to make as our benediction. This morning, it's a scripture that relates specifically to finances, but the principle of it is true for all of our lives. Why don't you stand for this closing benediction? And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. Go in peace. Amen.